0: This is the second in my two-part podcast on Bishop George K.A. Bell, the Bishop of Chichester during the Second World War, and is called Bishop Bell, the Play. And the play refers to a play entitled Soldiers that was first produced in Berlin in October of 1967, and written by a German playwright um, who, resident in Switzerland, named Rolf Hochhut. Now, don't mind if you haven't heard, uh, we would say Hakuth. Uh Don't uh, worry if you haven't heard about this play. It is uh, actually uh, the successor play to one you might have heard of if you grew up in the mid-60s in the east coast of the U.S., or <clears throat> and it was called The Deputy. And The Deputy was considered an anti-Catholic play because it was a dramatized uh, version of the, um, uh, uh, opinion that uh, uh The um, uh, uh, Pope uh, during the Second World War had been informed of the uh, Nazi holocaust of the Jews and had um, chosen to stay quiet and to act privately rather than publicly in face of this horrendous uh, news. Now that's very controversial territory and the deputy was very controversial and it's greater interest to us who might uh, be connected either to Mockingbird or to uh, general thinking today about the church is it's uh, the tale it tells that really no one in America, knew until the deputy, and still many don't, about the Gerstein Bericht. That is the Gerstein Report, <clears throat> and the deputy tells the primary story of an evangelical Protestant Christian man, Kurt Gerstein, <clears throat> whose sister, having been uh, killed um, by euthanasia during the early days of Hitler, came to his senses about the uh, the. Evil of Nazism, and actually uh, did a remarkable, uh, shocking thing of joining the SS in order to find out whether the rumors of the concentration camps were true. And he did. He was one of the very first. Um, uh, objective people, you might say, to witness the gassing of uh, uh, Jews in Poland, and so horrified was it because he had really joined the SS purely to to find out. He was a kind of fifth columnist who had no employers. He then wrote something called the. Uh, uh, he wrote a, a letter to the Swedish ambassador and just went knocking up and down Germany. And on his he was able to get away and to to meet with various neutral parties, even it is believed with a, a Roman Catholic bishop, to get the word through to the Pope and or to the allies of the horror of what was unfolding in Poland, and no one believed him. And this is a true story, and he's now considered a kind of a, a canonical figure because of the courage of what he did. And before he died in a, a French prison, right after the um, uh, surrender, uh, because he'd been in the SS, he was considered immediately a war criminal, and he wasn't. He was, in fact, the opposite. If that's possible, it's possible Here. And he wrote up something called the Gerstein Report, which I've actually, and uh, our son David has actually held in, in in our hands, the original of this in Berlin, in which he uh, recorded his quest to have people find out about this and his report of what he saw and what he knew. And it turned out to all be true. He had made f- f- Extraordinary, dangerous efforts to get the word out earlier than almost anyone else, and he had failed. And so The Deputy was a story both of the Pope and of this Protestant, rather evangelical, awkward, odd character named Kurt Gerstein, who did this amazing thing. Now, after it, um, Hochhut, because he had an international sensation and he was a highly ethical uh, and interested political playwright, wrote a play called Soldiers. And in Soldiers... Uh, Hochwit is uh, trying to, um, to um, uh, he sets the scene uh, at Coventry Cathedral in which an anniversary is being celebrated of the Geneva Convention against Air Warfare, the kind of air warfare that Bishop Bell so protested in a lonely voice in, uh, uh, in 1944. And this uh, protest of Bell's is dramatized in a lengthy and very talky and intellectual play called Soldiers. Now, the play was not able to be performed in England. It was actually... um Uh, It it was actually um, uh, banned in England for a few years because it cast such aspersions on Winston Churchill. The play, the conceit of the play, which is uh, told through a kind of everyman, I think it's called the London Theatre of the World. The conceit is that an everyman is telling the story uh, in 1957, or actually 67, in the supposed anniversary of the Geneva Convention against the bombing of civilians uh, from the air. The... um, the, uh, uh, the play uh, tells the story of a of, a, uh, uh, of the gestation of the, and the bitterness and the intention of Winston Churchill to carry through this bombing using uh, various air marshals and bomber Harris this position and it also uh, implies that um, uh, doesn't imply it basically states that Winston Churchill uh, somehow was involved in an order by British intelligence to wipe out uh, General Sikorsky the Um, free Polish uh, figure uh, for reasons of uh, politique and that the famous crash in which Sikorsky was killed was actually engineered by British intelligence. Now that's not, I know nothing about that and I'm not interested in it and if it's so you read the play. Uh, It was so controversial that it was published by the Grove Press so my hardback edition which I'm holding in my hand, is a Grove Press edition. Soldiers, a play by Rolf Hochut. Now I want to read uh, act uh, number, let's let's get this right I believe it's the third act called The Garden there are three acts and the third act is called The Garden and in this play um, uh, Churchill uh, who is has his secretary named Helen who's a war widow and uh, a number of other characters an air marshal uh, and a few other people but mainly just alone uh, he um, is confronted this situation never occurred in history but the emotion of it is accurate, the emotion of the issues. We know that Churchill detested Bell, and it is believed that Churchill's government was, was directly responsible for um, the block of the appointment of Bell to Canterbury, which would have been the natural thing. He was regarded as the finest and most statesmanlike and most gifted and most credible character among the Church of England bishops. And when um, When uh, William Temple died suddenly in October of 1944, it was just, quote, assumed that Bell would be tapped, and he wasn't, and he wasn't tapped for anything else, and in fact, his not being tapped earlier for York, and much earlier than that, even for London, implied that people knew that they were dealing with Bell with someone who couldn't be handled. Bell could not be controlled. So he was passed over as early as 1939 for London, a great, which would have been a great, uh, a great uh, promotion or preferment as over against Chichester, which was a rural, ancient obviously, but rural diocese. Uh, Chichester um, uh, was passed over three times. And this uh, happened because of, uh, of um, um, Churchill's antipathy. So goes the story. But we know in the tone of what happened afterwards that uh, Bell was universally regarded as a, a prophetic and courageous person with Christian conscience that was undeniable. Bonhoeffer stated that so clearly in his closing words and in other letters that there was no way he could be controlled. And in this uh, uh, act called The Garden, um, Hoch is very intellectual. He's a typically intellectual German playwright, although remember, he was operating here from Switzerland. And he he always has lengthy um, historical prefaces. He's constantly interjecting long sort of historical explanations to the drama. And it's very talky because he's really interested in ideas. These are dramas of ideas, although the deputy is very, very powerful. And it was made into a movie by Costa Gavras called um, Witness, Uh, a remarkable movie about uh, uh, the SS uh, Christian man, Gerstein, and his uh, attempt to get the word out on the Holocaust. Uh, The movie is very good by Costa Gavras, and it's recent. Uh, This is a little too talky, but in the uh, introduction to Act 3, we... um, I'm going to tell you what happens. Read what happens in Act 3, and then you'll draw your own conclusions because this is called Bishop Bell, the play, and despite the fact that this is manufactured as a situation, in my opinion, this play reflects the deepest possible emotional and conceptual and ultimately theological and providential connections between a, a Christian witness of credible, what What um, J D. Salinger calls in Franny and Zoey an absolutely unbogus religious person to quote um, to quote Franny in the story Franny, part of Franny and Zooey, Franny speaks uh, of uh, having met in the Christian world some absolutely unbogus religious person, and this would be Bishop Bell now. Hochelsk begins by saying this. Bell must have needed all his humor between 1943 and 1945 to help him overcome the shrill insults of the white-haired lords in the house and of the press. And in the play, Bell comes on wearing uh, Racha and Shamir, and uh, that is to say Episcopal robes, not Eucharistic vestments, because he wouldn't have ever worn them except in certain situations. Bell, by the way, for those of you who care or are interested, Bell was high church but not Anglo-Catholic. He was truly Catholic in sympathies to all schools of thought in the Church of England. We would call him broadly orthodox, liberal in respect to social issues, not all but most, liberal respect to political issues, Um, uh, broad in churchmanship, but going to the high church. He could never have been appointed to Chichester had he not been high church, but not ceremonialist, ritualist, or Anglo-Catholic, and um, uh, 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 theologically um, mainstream, orthodox without being... heavy. And Hawke uh, describes him uh, coming onto the scene with his ratchet and shamir, his Episcopal robes, his black and his white. The astute churchman has planned to exploit to the fullest his 17th century vestments. And then he says, Bell, he writes in the rubric, is a very experienced, these are stage directions actually, Bell is a very experienced and a very English orator. Anger makes him quiet. The excitement is in what he says not in the way he says it. Now, that is true. We know Bell's speech. He was recorded. His speech was not recorded on a microphone in 1944, but he had a rather high-pitched voice, he spoke very deliberately. He had an extremely, quote, educated English accent. He had come from a very educated background, though his father was a clergyman, but that was no class thing, because in those days, uh, there was still a very strong tradition of, uh, of, uh, of quote, uh, highly educated and, quote, upper class individuals going into the church. You see it, and it's, ultimate form in Jane Austen, but in the days of, uh, of Somerset Maugham even, who says it clearly, and in George Bell, there was still a large number of vicars who were third sons who couldn't inherit and would take a living to make a living, and yet were also usually very sincere and very fine. And that's, in fact, the truth, and you see it in Jane Austen. You'll see it especially in the, in the character of uh, Edward Ferrars in uh, Sense and Sensibility. Now, uh, we hear... Um, this, in the stage direction which Hawketh puts on page one hundred and eighty nine just before Bell enters, while he is speaking, that is Churchill Churchill is speaking to his secretary and to um, a, a bomber a, a bomber pilot a leader of the bomber, bomber pilots who's there while he is speaking, Churchill is speaking. The Bishop of Chichester appears with a suddenness. He stands before the prime minister with an impertinence of almost Churchillian dimensions, so much so that Churchill, to whom this has never happened before, is at a loss for words, something else that has never happened to him before. Bell, stage direction, with an Englishman's unique capacity for speaking quietly at moments of extreme anger and with biting Annunciation. Now, this was always stated about Bell, those who knew him, and he had very close friends who regarded him. He, he later became regarded as a saintly figure, uh, but at this time he was simply a, a regarded as a very uh, respectable and, and a deeply committed and passionate churchman who, who, had, uh, who was not a radical in any way, but he was a, a man of wide sympathies wide sympathies. And everybody who came to him always said, Bishop Bell was interested in me. Whenever we talked, I felt I was the only person to whom he had ever spoken. He would look at me with his deep blue eyes and take in everything I was saying. And uh, he appeared to be completely focused on me as I spoke. And he was a great listener. Anyway, we also know that when he became very passionate, he would speak very quietly and had a kind of biting enunciation and high-pitched voice. And apparently during the, the speech, which I read to you parts of last time, Uh, during that speech those who were there and of course hundreds were um, he had that quality as he got to the most passionate and important parts the most courageous and unusual parts he spoke more quietly and with a kind of clipped enunciation and he says his opening words to Churchill are forgive me prime minister I can wait perfectly well but not with I will wait in the garden not with your bomber chief with his drum roll of military cliches Well, he's bomber Harris. Arthur Harris has been has been outside and and Bell has simply cannot stand being in the same place. And he says, I will wait in the garden, not with your bomber chief, with his drum roll of military uh, cliches. And then he uh, points out, and, and Churchill is determined here to win. Churchill realizes it, it, that Bell represents, accurately and historically, but this didn't happen, Bell represents here for the playwright Churchill's conscience or Churchill's own inner dialogue with what he was doing and whether he was doing right in ordering this uh, massive attack from the air, <clears throat> which was causing uh, so much carnage among civilians, collateral damage. They were destroying military targets like U-Boat. You know, in Bremen and uh, Hamburg, uh, ports where U-boats could uh, dock, and they were definitely doing all these kinds of um, – they they were destroying some factories, yes, absolutely, and Bell acknowledged that fully. But in doing so, they were killing thousands of people, and Bell says to – they're discussing here on page 191 – the Hamburg raid in which so many thousands were killed, and Bell says, quote, with sarcasm, and the raid on Hamburg was called Gomorrah, as in Sodom and Gomorrah. That was the codename for it. Says Bell, more people probably than Hitler has killed so far in all his raids on England. We kill with Gomorrah in a single night. The prime minister rises. He is standing higher up than the bishop. And then uh, Halkwith has put words from the speech into Bell's talk. Um, our fury is unworthy, I ask you: Are not these actions a betrayal of the ideals that impelled us all? That's a uh, that's a, uh, um, a quote. And then he reads what he has found out from his anti-Nazi uh, um, uh, friends and former colleagues who are marooned in Germany, conspiring against the Nazis. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He reads. Uh, something to the Prime Minister. He says, Here from various reports are the first estimates kept secret from the German population. 45% more female casualties than male. 20% of the dead under 14 years of age with a corresponding percentage of casualties of age 55 and over. Bishop, don't you see the war has more theaters than Gomorrah? Bell, Bell, is Hamburg then a theater of war? Well, it's a play on the word theater, and it's a play on the fact that there was no actual action being taken in Hamburg. I mean, you kill 60,000, 40,000. My friend... Uh um, Herr Moltmann was only what 14, 13 years old, a little boy, uh, trying to man an aircraft gun that he couldn't operate on that night. He was a little boy when that terrible thing happened. And uh, uh, what was he to do? A kid, and uh, his best friend standing next to him was killed by a piece of shrapnel from an allied bullet, and Maltmann's little friend of 13 or 14 lay dead, instantaneously killed on the ground next to him, and Maltmann immediately thought to himself, why him and not me, and therein lay the gestation of Herr Maltmann's theological journey, which is another uh, question. And then Bell becomes angry at the Prime Minister and says, I'm skipping, but you can read it. Read this. This is easily available in any bookstore. Order it. Um, Bell says, How could his majesty's government be answerable for sacrificing our best men in hordes in operations about which they will wish to remain silent after the war is over? In other words, no one's going to want to talk about the, the, the being – No one's, is anyone going to be proud ultimately of being a, a bomber pilot beyond the reach of anti-aircraft with no resistance whatsoever, who has, whose bombs have created a fire uh, that have uh, killed um, in a single night uh, 20,000 uh, people, uh, the vast majority of whom are female uh, children or uh, retirees? Uh, if they stop and think about it. I mean, you know, I know a fellow, let me just tell you, I know a fellow who, who had a, a complete, um, who, who, had, who left the Air Force recently. He was a pilot of, of some of these airplanes that do this incredible damage from very high altitudes using the highest technology. And he knew, he began to have a sense of how many people he, he, were killed through this. And he, 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 he actually um, punished himself career-wise in a very dramatic way by, he, he could not continue. Um, I was with a person in Charleston in our parish, and uh, uh, her son was one of the bomber pilots uh, who was bombing um, Iraq uh, during Operation Desert Storm when when uh, Hussein Hussein's so-called crack imperial troops or whatever they were called then were on the ground ready to destroy our invading. And there were really just a lot of guys with blue helmets in their underwear. Believe me, no bullets, blue helmets in their underwear. We know this because when our troops got there, they were just amazed at the pathetic, Character of the so-called crack troops of Saddam Hussein? No such thing. But this uh, woman said, "You know, my my son is a, in one of these planes from so many thousands of feet up, and he's dropping these huge payloads." And he said to me the other night over the uh, the phone or whatever it was from over there, he said, "Mom, I I or he wrote in a letter, I'm I feel I'm probably I'm probably responsible for the deaths of thousands of young men, unarmed, almost virtually unarmed. We think they're on, we, we don't know, but I'm I'm probably responsible for the." Deaths of thousands of people, Mom. I how, I, I, can't, I, how can I reconcile this with being a Christian? These were very devout, uh, really the right kind of Episcopalians. They were, they were, you know, quiet and uh, not intrusive and utterly unself-righteous, uh, but pious uh, Episcopalian type people uh, who took their faith seriously but didn't wear it on their sleeves. And her son says, "Mom, I, I don't. How can I reconcile this? What I'm doing? I can't see these people, but I have this terrible feeling that I'm responsible for the death of thousands of people." I cannot see. And then uh, and then the Helen, the secretary, uh, becomes outraged. She starts defending the Churchill. Churchill's secretary starts defending. Uh, he's alone with her, with the bishop, and she starts defending this. And, and uh, 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 she says, uh, what you are saying, uh, Lord Bishop, does a pilot have to atone then for what he does on orders? And then Bell replies, the bishop replies, our military code, section three, article 13, protects all British combatants from orders the carrying out of which would make him a criminal. Bell continues his line of argument since he is appalled that she, as a woman, can react like this. Now, this is 2011, people. This play was written in 1967. I don't know what to make of this, but listen to what he says. Bell says turns on her, the secretary to the uh, prime minister, and says that you, a woman, should talk like this. I am here on my own. Among soldiers, officers, you should be helping on my side as a woman. Don't you realize that never before has this kind of thing been allowed with us? Never again will it be understood? This is this is equivalent to the shooting of hostages, to demoralize the enemy who are all at the front. Mrs. MacDonald, please... Now, he's arguing with her on on grounds of a, a woman's heart, which we today may say is a, is a construct, a male construct. Well, say it what you like, but the words hokuth, it doesn't have to be a woman. He's appalled that someone here could actually believe that this policy is just and good. But in time of war, it is. Now, um, there's more to it. <clears throat> Bell says to the uh, prime minister, the pilot must not obey such orders. And then he says, this is a classic thing that Christians and people of conscience have made ever since Socrates. Uh, Bell says to him, uh, the, the PM says, this is the law of war. The war of war is savage. And there are a lot of things that people do in wars that we won't want to talk about afterwards. Who are you to talk about the laws? And then he says, Bell says, lawyers make laws The law is made by God regardless of the demands of the judiciary. Well, he's getting nowhere with uh, uh, the prime minister. The prime minister is an immovable object. But so, as we find out, is the conviction of Bell. And what will finally happen in this long exchange is that Bishop Bell comes out the winner. And uh, the prime minister comes out the loser. But it is at the cost of everything, uh, but, uh, including Bell's own sense of hope. And yet it is ultimately Bell's willingness to, for his position to be naked and unafraid that uh, defeats the uh, tremendous mock politique, even for good reason, as he sees it, of Winston Churchill. Bell, it says uh, uh, in a stage direction, is now emptied by a feeling of helplessness and uh, the another uh, subsidiary character uh, says in the stage directions at this time deeply confused this is a bomber uh, officer uh, an air force officer looks uh, to uh, the uncritically adored churchill and then he looks to the bishop who his reason tells him is right <clears throat> And then uh, there's much else. It goes on and on and on. And uh, Bell is the first one in the play who begins also in this subplot to begin to understand that something that Churchill has given away as a kind of offhanded remark is probably uh, implying an appalling secret, or as the stage direction says, a horrifying idea. Bell begins to understand that um, Sikorsky, according to the play, has uh, been uh, uh, killed by the direct uh, order of Winston Churchill through British intelligence for reasons that relate to the aftermath of the war and the current uh, Polish Free Army and the questions of the Russians and a Russian demand that's, of course, be rubbed out. And Bell is the one who begins to understand what has happened. There's much else. There's some very interesting comments about uh, America in which Bell regards, to, regards America as the golden calf. Uh, and does, do we want the Americans to win the golden calf or do we want the Russians to win with Stalinism? And uh, um, Churchill, according to the stage direction, is beginning to concede things without wishing to. Bell, says the stage direction by Hohoth. Bell, by his quiet strength, has released something akin to shame in Churchill. And the Prime Minister is becoming discomposed for a moment by the knowledge that someone is stronger than he. We read that the uh, that uh, churchill doesn 't understand bell, and then we read this. Um, The the, uh, prime minister says, you ask me so many questions, Bishop. Now I ask you a question. What did you achieve as the first foreigner to protest against Hitler's race laws? When was it? Bell. In 34. Achieved? I achieved nothing. You see, Bell achieved nothing. Bell achieved absolutely nothing. In 1933, he wrote a poem in his diocesan newsletter. I think it was called A Cathedral View. I mean, I have it here. I can read it to you. He wrote a poem in his diocesan newsletter. Uh, It was sort of the bishop's word in the uh, diocesan newspaper of Chichester in 1933. And he writes a poem to the Jews. And he, 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 he says in every way, the Jews are the great victims out of Adolf Hitler. We must do something. And then, because he could do nothing for the Jews directly, qua Jews, he could, because of the laws of visas and because of the power of the established church, he could bring uh, ethnic Jews who claimed to have some connection with the church into England. They were the only ones he, he could actually bring in legally because he was sort of like a legal officer of the established church. So he was able to... It was like you could print visas. He was able to get visas to thousands of Jewish Germans who... Uh, could swear that they had been baptized uh, to be Christians and had some role. He would give them role as church journalists. That was usually the thing. And he brought thousands of them in. He knew full well that many of them were not baptized. And many of them were doing it purely to get away with their families from Hitler. And he had no problem with that. He brought all sorts of Jews to England, including some who were devout Christians and Lutheran clergy of Jewish ethnic background. But he brought – he didn't. He just used the power he had – to bring non-Aryans uh, into uh, some kind of church. But then they all became work, that is to say, then they all became uh, put into concentration camps on the Isle of Wight and, he, and treated horribly and he became their friend. Well, I'm almost uh, finished, um, but I, uh, I want to read this. Bell says to the prime minister, uh, the targets change, but it will always be the same the killing of the defenseless from the air. Now this is where people in the Middle East will never forgive in at least the next one or two generations the uh, what America has done by killing uh, with massive and completely uncontestable uh, power from the air especially by drones which are not even piloted by human beings but are piloted essentially by people thousands of miles away who cannot even get their hands dirty uh, or greasy or full of gas in running these things. Uh, This is uh, he says um, the targets will change but what will stay the same is the killing of the defenseless from the air and he says mastery my lord or whatever he says PM mastery is not fame mastery cannot last we must ensure the inviability of the defenseless The whirlwind of these war years has swept away so many taboos. Let me just add targeted assassinations from the air. That is a taboo until very recently. It would have brought down any number of U.S. presidents. The whirlwind of these years has swept away so many taboos. Cannot you, the conservative, that's a member of the conservative party, set one up again? Well, at this point, uh, the bishop um, and uh, have nothing left to say, and the stage direction says, Bell comes closer, which increases the prime minister's anger. Then confidentially, he speaks, that is the bishop, with cool imperturbability. What the bomber pilot, he says, does is still not his subjective guilt, but that of our society. We have to awaken the consciousness of what is a criminal deed, and uh, at that point, the bishop, and now we're finished, the, the bishop says to his secretary, turns brusquely away from the bishop and says, Helen, a car for the bishop at once. And then uh, he finishes. Bill leaves the bishop and says, Save, this is his final words save what an Englishman brought into being. Take your stand by the legacy of Florence Nightingale. Well, that's a, pro- that's a podcast, ladies and gentlemen. The last words of the bishop to Winston Churchill. Save what an English woman brought into being. Take your stand by the legacy of Florence Nightingale. Stage direction, he turns away, he is forced to, overcome by despair and the trembling in his voice. The bishop's voice fades like that of mankind in the tumult of the massacre of history. To hide his despair, he makes an effort to regain some sort of composure. And then as a kind of P.S., an air marshal comes in and asks the prime minister what has happened. And the prime minister says, well, to the secretary actually says, did the prime minister silence the old demagogue, referring to Bell, who was the last person You could ever call a demagogue. The air marshal says, well, did the PM silence the old demagogue? Helen sighs and smiles. If he ever got to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, the air marshal, I expect that will be taken care of. Well, that's a classic Hohut ending. It's very deep. It's very upsetting. It's, he leaves you with a, with a tremendous um, a tragic feel of the impossibility of human change and human protest. Well, I've uh, read uh, to you uh, aspects of the play, commented on them in present perspective, and I leave you with this picture of one remarkable man. Uh, Bell uh, was denied preferment. He very... Lovingly and with grace and resignation carried on until 1957. He spent 1945, the end of 1945, and 47, trying to do everything he could <clears throat> for defeated uh, German uh, Christians who were at the absolute nadir of all human existence from their point of view. And he went to uh, Berlin three times and preached to massive congregations in bombed-out cathedrals. He never learned the German language. He was too English. He couldn't learn German. He knew very little, really, about German literature, but he knew a great deal about the German German people whom he respected as Christians, particularly Niemöller and uh, and um, Bonhoeffer, and he was the first person to tell uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's parents, it was through a radio address on the BBC, that their son had been uh, murdered by the Nazis at the end of the war, and they lost two sons, and I think two sons-in-law. And he um, did everything he could to comfort, uh, with righteous uh, compassion, the... Uh, the defeated uh, German Lutherans in this case, uh, anyone he could talk to. And then he spent basically the last time of his ministry sort of going to flower festivals and uh, uh, rummage sales and uh, confirmations and marrying and burying uh, people in um, Sussex for the rest of his life. And if you want to uh, go on the internet to see a very powerful thing, not only read the the speech, which is on the House of Lords site, but look up the painting that was done by Sir William Coldstream in 1954 towards it's the very end of uh, uh, um, uh, Bell's uh, life in Episcopacy. It's simply a, a portrait from 37 sittings. You know, people used to do the portrait from a painting, and many portraits were done of Bell. But the, the most uh, controversial one is the 1954 portrait by Sir William Coldstream, which is owned by the Tate, but now on a permanent exhibit at the Pallant House Gallery in Chichester. I've never seen it, and I'm dying to see it. I hope I will in the next few years. And he, a Coldstream painted a picture of uh, of the old man, which uh, is less meek than usual. There's a tremendous pugnacity. There's a depth. There's a depth of sorrow. There's a pugnacity coupled with a resolve, as we say today, that is overwhelmingly powerful in the painting. Uh, I hope you'll see it by Sir William Coldstream. And you can internet it, web it, um, find it. Uh, and you will see this extraordinary combination of kind of here-I-stand heroism with an absolutely single-mindedness, coupled with, and you'll see that in photographs, of the milk of human kindness, which everyone who ever met the man one-to-one respected. But in one of his last confirmations, and now I close, one of his last confirmations, he went to confirm a group in a small little parish somewhere, not so far from a city in uh, in what was then still quite rural Sussex. And uh, uh, as he gave the blessing uh, at uh, uh, the end, uh, very much close, uh, uh, a a woman's voice shot out from the uh, congregation, Oh, go back to Germany where you belong. Bell uh, made the Trinitarian blessing, Amen, and sat down. And that is something of the story of George K.A. Bell.